Hello, and welcome to the Blossom Your Awesome Podcast, episode number 19. Today on the show, we have got psychotherapist and author Katherine Jansen Burkett. She is the author of River to Ocean, Living in the Flow of Wakefulness. We are going to be talking to her about her holistic approach to healing and the power of learning to live in a state of wakefulness, to have that ultimate clarity and ultimate discovery of an awakened self. I cannot wait to get her insights and wisdom on this. I am so honored and delighted to have her here. Catherine, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sue, so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I am so excited to have you here. Um, now, I'm going to say we head right into it and get a little bit of your background for starters. Okay. Um, well, it's a life journey that um, uh, where I've arrived is uh, two decades into a second career that was a first career in public health. Um and uh, loved that part of my life, but basically went to a personal retreat and kind of heard the call from the universe that um, I was to do something very different and become a therapist. And it surprised me because I ended up being a, a journey of going back to, to school, getting a second master's. I was raising children at the time. <laughs> um, it was not convenient to my life, but it was... Um, I, my life has never been the same in a way since. Um, I come from a tradition of um, therapists kind of thing. My dad was a therapist. He's passed now. So it wasn't unfamiliar to me, but it wasn't until that moment that it was like, this is really now part of your path. Um, and then I can tell you personal details just in terms of my personal journey, um, if that's helpful too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, four sisters raised in rural Oregon by very liberal people in a very conservative environment. I'm so appreciative of those things now. Um, trauma at 14, which ended up being a really big part of my healing. And then some pieces that I put into the book when my dad left in a very unfortunate way when I was 14, my sister was 10. Um, at the time, we didn't know he was an alcoholic because we didn't really see it. So it really was crushing because I did not expect that to happen. We had a pretty secure, happy childhood, um, you know, not a perfect life, but it, it really came out of, out of nowhere for me. So um, by 19 years old, he'd gotten into AA, he'd done some step work, and he was already doing the repair work with me. But at that point, what I like to say is the damage was kind of done and I didn't really understand um, the deep effect of trauma in the form of feeling unworthy, like not good enough to keep my dad staying with us and the rage that I was ended up having to really work with. Um, I didn't <laughs> for some years of my life, which is super sad, but had quite a temper and, and didn't know why I was so angry. Um, and so... My personal journey has always included personal work and healing. Um, and I think the the biggest thing is uh, the the arrival at a place um, where I feel like that wounded little girl and young woman has has really healed inside of me. Mm, now, let me ask you something. 
do you feel, so you get this call from the universe to do this Mm -hmm. other work and Mm -hmm. now you're working with people in this intimate way and helping them heal. Was there a part Mm -hmm. of that work that you feel um, helped you, even though I'm, you know, you were healed to some extent, right. When you Mm -hmm. became a therapist, but I'm sure that's in a way been healing for you as well. Absolutely. I I would say the healing continued uh, and and does still continue. I don't know that there's some moment of arrival, but there's certainly markers of some pretty um, deep transformation and restoration. Uh, So yeah, it was a huge part. Um, I kind of feel like everybody should become a therapist to, to have the exposure to some of what so many people uh, don't have exposure to. So I, and I'm that therapist that will share um, bits and pieces of my personal journey. I feel like we have professional standards that are um, actually very separating and not to process anything, of course, but I really want my clients to not feel alone. And so people will come in with the symptoms of what I believe is a compromised sense of self and a disconnect to their own consciousness, spiritual or otherwise, as they define it. And, but they don't say that they all they're depressed or they're anxious or they're having trouble in their relationships or they're abusing food or alcohol. Um, So it's, it's incredible to be in this role and kind of be able to help in a way that I, I actually often wasn't helped. Therapists didn't always put some pieces together and and then see that be able to happen with um, those that I have the privilege to work with. This is so powerful and so beautiful. The fact that, um, you know, you said, and I've had the same experience with therapists and therapy at, you know, on many occasions, not really working because there's that kind of disconnect where it's Mm -hmm. more, okay, I'm just kind of talking to somebody. They're not really, I mean, do they get it? But I think it's so amazing that you're incorporating your, I mean, sharing a part of you to help them understand that, hey, you do get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think our my whole profession is actually really changing some of those old fashioned rules. Of course, I'm not going to take $10,000 from a client and I'm not going to sleep with anybody. But this idea <laughs> that I can't accept a gift or that I can't tell any part of my story, I actually think one of the um, just tragedies of life right now is how alone people feel and the way to not feel alone, not just I am with you and that you are paying for a session, but I am with you on this path of healing. And I am with you on this path of, you know, conscious living and loving. And um, yeah, I, I just feel really only stronger and stronger about that, um, that some boundaries were really I think almost came from a legalistic kind of perspective. Uh, so yeah, yeah, there, you know, I feel like my clients are my dear friends. It's not a social relationship. I don't socialize with them. I kind of, that line in the sand, sand is still there for me, but um, my father, one thing he, he, before he died, I was just finishing graduate school. And so I said, dad, what, what do you, what's your advice? Like one thing you could tell me. And he, he looked at me and he said, Catherine, just love them. And it was so wise and so simple and so clear. And I don't necessarily say I love you, but that that comes through, that transmits. And I think between love and not feeling alone, 
the techniques are great. The sense of, you know, diagnostics sometimes are important, you know, um, interventions are important, but those two other pieces are, are the big ones. Wow. I just, you know, I, I think that is so amazing. I'm kind of like wanting to go deeper with this. I really think, I mean, this is outside of the norm and I would love to see this kind of become the norm in some way. I feel right. There's a part Mm -hmm. of you that's probably exceptional at what you do because of your own trauma and Mm -hmm. you're able to kind of allow that to kind of unfold organically through the work you're doing with your clients. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what I, and I have a little section in my book, what I did was I would present um, an idea like self-love or relationship to self or intrinsic worth. Um, Then I would have a practice piece because I believe very much we can't, we don't really change cognitively. We can learn things, but this is this is deep work. It's neurological work. And so we have to, we have to have direct experience and put things in practice. And then I would always have a story from the field. Some of them were my stories, but mostly they were not my stories, just like three paragraphs, very short. So one, one story, this gentleman I've worked with for a bit um, and still do and such, such a wonderful experience. Um, you know, he moved from kind of being identified as I have bipolar, I am bipolar, I will never have a successful relationship, like I am this diagnosis, uh, to he has this diagnosis. And so um, path versus pathology was a little segment I wrote in my first aspect of wakefulness, which is around relationship to self, just so that we're not so to help people, Sue, to your point, yes, meeting them where they begin in often a trauma trauma response in their life or some patterning around it, but then to help them heal such that um, they are not over-identified with that. They are not the brokenness that they thought they were. And um, I pinch myself sometimes that I get to be in the room. It's an incredible honor to witness and support people's healing. Okay, so how do we, just a little tip here on, detaching yourself from that trauma or brokenness. It's a great, that's a, I love getting right into the weeds because otherwise we can just have lovely conversation about lovely ideas. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, and now what? Um, so there's this uh, technique uh, in psychotherapy called parts work. And really it's, it's an idea that, um, and again, no one helped me with this. There, there were just not therapists doing psychoeducation. They were just really good listeners. But I was, I was drowning in my own words and I, and own uh, illusions. So parts work. What that would look like is adult Catherine is going to when I start to feel unworthy, or even there's a behavior that's about proving myself or being perfectionistic. All of which come from unworthiness, or much of which does. Um, then I know actually my young injured part of me, what I like to say is online. So there's an adult Catherine who knows she's worthy, but there's this other part of me. She doesn't know always that she's worthy. She, she hadn't fully healed. And as soon as you can break it into parts, then it's not the whole. And then you and I can talk, Sue, about is that adult Catherine, just a human being and an ego self Or is that a deeper kind of core sense of self that is human and beyond? 
that is ultimately the helper to the part of us that is, again, identified around brokenness, unworthiness, I'm unlovable, I don't belong. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And where, I mean, where does that come from? So our word, now I'm asking, you know, two questions here in one, but is the lack of worth like linked to that? Are we intrinsically, do we all kind of have that little part of us? Well, it's, um, this is a great kind of story about one of my kids. She, she was one of the readers for the book and, and the story around unworthiness that I started with. Um, it was a gentleman who is kind of classic stuff. His dad was really not involved in his life he always felt like he wasn't good enough for his dad's attention. Um, and he carried that through his adult life and has had really to work to heal that. So my daughter, Elizabeth, said, you know, mom, I'm 25 years old. I struggle with worth. And you never told me you were completely there. And you never said you're not good enough. In fact, you said, I believe in you. You're totally good enough. I love you. Mm. So what that really showed me and her story then is in the book too, because I wanted everybody to be able to relate to this idea is sometimes it's a trauma response, Sue, and, but sometimes I believe it's a cultural response. What I like to say is when we're babies, we don't wonder, am I good enough or should I not cry because I'm not as good as that other baby um, that needs the food more? Like there is no consciousness around less than. So it, it is conditioning somehow that happens along the way. But the, the culture, Western culture in particular, can really do a number. Well, many cultures can. So I think it's multi, I think, I think most people have to contend at some point with am I intrinsically worthy or am I worthy because of my achievements, my health, the money I have, fill in the blank. And what is intrinsically worthy? Like what does that look like? What that looks like is it, it really transcends the sense of ego because I am enough. Like I, there is, there is nothing to prove. There is an existence to manifest. Like if I want to get good grades, cause then I can get into a good college. That's awesome. Cause then I'll have more options, but it doesn't, there is nothing I can add to my worth and nothing that can be subtracted. I remember one time I was doing some volunteer work, just, taking, I love to bake chocolate chip cookies. So we we're taking cookies to homeless people in Portland. There are a lot of houseless people. And I, I offered to this man, um, would you like a cookie? And he looked at me and he said, I don't matter. And he turned away and I said, you matter as much as I do. And I really, really hope that some part of you will let yourself have the love in this cookie and this cookie, um, you know, that I am no better than, um, even, no matter how accomplished I am. So I just like to go to either, you know, someone like the Dalai Lama or a houseless person to kind of define that sense of um, the worth that uh, is streaming through us all. And I would say it's part of our consciousness. Now, what about, okay, here's a, a hypothetical scenario. Okay. Um, I am, you know, you're brought up in an environment where you're loved, you're nurtured, you're told you're worthy and you know, you're young, you're a little naive, and then you get older 
And then you have a series of horrific relationships. I'm using someone here as an example, a friend um, Mm -hmm. who, you know, again, was brought up in this environment, feeling so loved and worthy, has been done well for herself, but then has had the series of bad relationships. And now as an adult is questioning that upbringing, right? Everything that Mm -hmm. she was taught. And Mm -hmm. now as an adult woman doesn't feel worthy. Yeah. That's such an interesting um, situation, isn't it? Because usually we think we would, we would have had those beliefs as children. We would have been bullied or a parent would have left us or something would have happened. Um, you know, without knowing her, of course, you know, I, I would be drilling down on maybe there were some more subtle aspects of not being fully good enough just because our culture really rewards performance which is a slippery slope towards, oh, if I get attention because I perform and then that feels good and that makes me, you know, somehow be more in the eyes of another and we're building a brain here, a little tiny brain that's like noticing all of that. Maybe there were some things there that she did not know, but but it didn't show up in kind of this awareness as a younger woman or, or a child. Um, the other thing is maybe it isn't a worth piece. Maybe it is something else about the choices she's making in relationship. And it's bigger than just her worth. It might be m- more about um, feeling so good about herself, but trying to, you know, rescue other people and not maybe have high enough standards around what she needs out of a relationship. Um, but going into it, feeling like she's confident and feels good about herself. So it's, it's some, that's the kind of thing I love to get into um, with clients. It's just kind of, where is this coming from? My whole thing is let's get to the source and not treat the symptom. And now, so for people, you know, as adults, we all have those moments where we lack self-worth. And let's say just getting really practical here, some practical tips or insights on, you know, how do we begin kind of peeling back those layers or getting deeper to, you know, figuring out what exactly is it that's making me feel not worthy or fearful of whatever. Well, so I, I, I start with people from a place of you either believe intellectually at the very least in the idea of intrinsic worth or you don't. And if people are parents, I will often use an analogy. Are your children worthy regardless of how well they do in school, regardless of how good they are at soccer. And there's just always a resounding yes, like absolutely intrinsically worthy. So I said, you know how you can feel that in your body? You can feel that in your bones. There's just a knowing. Uh Then if it is true for your children, then it has to be true for you. And then that's, that is a pause of like, oh, but I don't have that embodied feeling for myself as I might my children, or maybe just a different, a a loved one. And so we start with, it does exist. I can kind of relate to how it might feel, even if I don't feel like it for myself. And then we do get into the weeds around where's the conditioning, what happened along the way that created ultimately a belief in you. It's cognitive work. And that's, that's a place for cognitive work. Um, but it can be, you know, I have that story about myself because of some trauma, or I have that story about myself because I live in this culture or was raised in this kind of family, um, where again, you kind of have to prove yourself, even though you're loved, 
Um, and so from that place, uh, and then finally, and I put this in my book, if we define our awakened self as some connection to the larger whole, a consciousness that lives outside of my humanness, so I'm not separate from that, then how could that, how could I be unworthy when it's consciousness, when it's love, when it's profound goodness in an unbounded way, it's just bound in my body as it's part of me. So I throw that in for people that, you know, identify as spiritually oriented people. If you are that, that consciousness, then it's only brilliance. It's only beauty. It's only love. How can that be less than? So Mm -hmm. Oh my God, I'm getting the chills. <laughs> that was beautiful. Now, okay, your book. So talk to us about River to Ocean and living in the flow of wakefulness. Help us understand that. Okay. Well, I have um I've been spiritual all my life and had a lot of incredible spiritual experiences. Uh, and especially becoming a therapist would get to what you just did the, okay, I have this spiritual life, but what about, you know, the, the real human troubles I'm having? Um, and so this book came to me 10 years ago, just like 20 years ago, the call to go become a therapist came to me. It just came not as a, that like that completes your life because I'm not a, I had not been a professional writer and that was never on my agenda to uh, write or or publish, but it was more this this needs to happen and it needs to come through. The name wasn't quite the name yet, um, and I already knew the structure and I knew the chapters although they grew over time, and I so it just it was kind of born. It's like my seventh child in a way. And then as I was writing, because I I did not plan to write a second book, I really had to put all the in it that I felt like, you know, where do we go to sleep if we're going to use the idea of wakefulness? You know, well, when I'm thinking about death and dying or in my relationships or with my body, or I don't practice mindfulness, or my mind is always taking me down rabbit holes. So every single aspect of wakefulness, starting with befriending you, relationship to self, freedom from the mind, cherishing the body, facing death and dying, all of those areas where the spirituality can just kind of like get tossed out the window. And my commitment is if we are awakened, then that stream of consciousness needs to be traveling with us through all of life's events and all of our human journey. And my analogy is we are all rivers moving toward that vastness that is the ocean. So that's the the metaphor. Wow. And now you, I think you said the first step is befriending you. So Mm -hmm. befriending ourselves, it would be Mm -hmm. the first step to wakefulness. Yeah. So within that, um, I felt like that's kind of you answering that question. Who am I? Who am I? And Introducing for people this book, uh, a couple of other reasons I it came became clear that it was important to write it is I can't be my kids' therapist and I wanted to leave them everything I ever had and every whatever teacher ever gave me and I wanted to pay it forward. I also want to make it um, accessible, spiritual ideas and wakefulness to people that wouldn't normally think of themselves as religious or spiritual. Um, I want to make it affordable for people that wouldn't go to therapy or couldn't afford it if there was a stigma. 
So um, anyway, that was part of why the book became um, an important offering. And I just, yeah, befriending you, it all kind of begins with who are you? Do you identify just as a human being, kind of an ego sense of self? Or is there an expanded sense of self, um, which I introduced? But then I got right into the nitty gritty of are you intrinsically worthy? What does self-love look like? How do we think about the ego? Because it is an important part of the human developmental process. So that was kind of a foundation from which with a befriended relationship to self, then I move into the other waters of wakefulness. And now um, self-love, what are some tips there for loving ourselves? Well, um, you know, affirmations were very popular and can be helpful to people um, to some level. Um, so it kind of can be, what are you thinking and doing in terms of if you are doing things that aren't loving or talking to yourself in a critical kind of way, you can start there. You can just take better care of yourself and act from a place of love. And because we have neuroplasticity, all of a sudden I find myself kind of just being, you know, more of a friend and liking myself better. And then that turns into love. And then the same thing with inner dialogue, you know, self-talk. If I am pretty harsh, like the idea of a harsh inner critic, um, I can I can very much intervene. I can't always stop the original thought, but I can offer a different compassionate, non-perfectionistic kind of approach to my humanity. And I would say, Sue, sometimes you just have to go to when did the self-love stop? When did the self-loathing begin? And do um, really more deep that deeper work, some of that parts work for those injured and um uh, younger parts of ourselves that actually believe that I'm not, that I don't love myself. There's something wrong with me. Now, you know, I feel like this is so prevalent for so many people. And then, and some are so much more resistant to this kind of train of thought. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. I, I, it's, it's sad to me um, that self-love um, without an understanding of what you and I, I believe understand translates to selfishness or narcissism. Um, what I offer and certainly experience it all the time is the more generous we are towards ourselves, the more generous we are towards others, our cup is full and kind of runneth over. And so, but there is this idea um, that, being kind to oneself, even in the form of having boundaries. Like, I don't want to help this person move. Like, I'm going to hurt my back and not being able even to say, um, you know, let me help you find something else or pay for it, but I can't help you literally move. Just that idea um, is kind of like, then I'm not being a good friend, then I'm not being nice. So I, I think there's um, some hurdles to overcome for a lot of people. And if you didn't have parents that modeled self-love and self-care and actually a relationship to self, um, then you've got to kind of, you know, do your own work from the beginning in a way, be the first generation of practicing that, not just professing that. I like to say, Sue, uh, practicing because it's easy to profess things, but then there's these parts of us that aren't actually all lined up with that. And that that's not good. We have to sort all the parts 
Okay. Um, so now all the parts, let's just another hypothetical, getting really practical for people here. I'm, you know, let's just say I'm really down and out and I didn't get a lot of those affirmations and, um, uh, <laughs> you know, love from parents and upbringing and I'm an adult now. And where do I start with kind of this deeper work? Mm-hmm. Well, I, you, uh, I, I, let's see where there's so many directions to go with it. I think we are um, born to love and, and again, this is a hurdle in often some cultures or even family cultures that loving oneself is somehow shameful or narcissistic or selfish but ultimately what feels good is reinforced and what feels right and true. And so I, I think taking baby steps toward um, even, for example, not being critical of oneself if you're down and out, just meeting yourself right where you are from a place of curiosity, a place of compassion, like, oh, I've been depressed three days. And I don't want to get out of bed. So instead of calling myself lazy, instead of deciding, you know, there's like wherever it could go, just being more neutral and curious. What's up with that? And starting with good for me to be able to own that rather than live an inauthentic life where I really feel like staying in bed or struggling, but I'm pretending to everybody I'm fine. You know, I I look for any place I can help people start to meet themselves, including just if you're even being honest with yourself right now, that's a huge step in the right direction because it's a step toward authenticity, which is a step towards wholeness. Wow. I think that is so powerful to refer to it as you are saying, you know, meeting yourself. Because I guess yeah. a lot of us are in denial or inauthentic yeah. or. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I like to do what I call mask work, a woman um, by the name of Debbie Ford, that she has done some of that. And that's kind of this idea we have masks in the world, a presented self versus our true self. And so the bravery of really, you know, um, being fully you, um, whether it's I'm alone because of an opinion, whether it's I'm different in some way, what, wherever that part is. Uh, I, I think that meeting yourself where you are, I can actually see in session because that's what I do. It's like, I'm going to meet you right where you are. I don't have a story that it's supposed to be different right now. I, this also isn't the end game. So you don't have to get scared, but what if you met yourself? Can you join me in just meeting you right where you are? You don't have to be a cheerleader right now. You don't have to put on a face. You don't have to arc up in any way. Just settle in and and the, literally it's a relaxation response of like, oh, I can exhale with you, Catherine. I can exhale. And maybe now with you, with myself, I can just meet myself where I am. And it, again, like self-love, it feels good to be authentic. It feels good to be present. It feels good to um, be kind. And so that grows pretty easily once we get some momentum growing. Now, is that feeling that comes up, I, th- that's so amazing and so beautiful to be able to kind of draw that out of people because, you know, we are, a lot of us are so fearful of just kind mm-hmm. of, okay, I'm not at my best right now, but I got to put mm-hmm. up this front. Right. So is that 
then that's a that initial stage of the wakefulness. Mm-hmm. That that decision, and even Sue, if what I can do initially with people is actually cause some dissonance, which is an odd thing to think of as you know, because I'm not I'm. I'm trying to help people feel less stressed, of course, as a therapist, but we do want there to be a like, oh, I I went to the social thing and um, I was actually feeling really quiet, but I forced myself to be talkative. Like, okay, so how does that feel when you put your head on the pillow just with you? No one knows, but you know, what was that like? And it doesn't mean you don't go to the party, but it does mean maybe you let yourself be quieter that night. You don't have an idea of how you're supposed to socialize. Um, so I think the we don't really get away with it when we, and there's consequence um, to our own sense of it chips away maybe at our soul a little bit when we abandon ourselves through not being authentic. And that's sometimes what I'll do. Like, go ahead and, and just be in that mask because that feels protective to you. It obviously came from somewhere, so we don't want to judge that but it also may not serve you any longer. I kind of take that developmental approach that it's not about it's wrong. It's more like it probably came from someplace that you may have outgrown and you can start to experiment. Gandhi has that great quote or that famous quote of a a thousand experiments with truth. So I often will say that like, let's just experiment. Like what would it be like to just have half of the time be a little bit quieter because your energy is quiet. And then the other half, you have your kind of social mask on. Is there a time that you find with people? I'm sorry, and I'm taking this all in. It's so much. And it's oh, so this is no apology needed. This is lovely. <laughs> I'm having so many like other things that I'm, you know, wanting to kind of go deeper with as mm-hmm. you're saying this stuff. Mm-hmm. So now, do you find? I mean, are people able to do that where they kind of have that, like the light bulb moment where it's like, okay, I've been holding on to this, but Hey, you know, um, I'm being guided in this way to kind of just be okay, be with my authentic self. And then it's like, you just realize, Hey, this is actually pretty cool. I can do this. I don't need to hold on to that. Right. Well, a couple of thoughts on that. That's a great point. Sometimes it's a light bulb moment. Um, I, there's, you know, I work with people a lot, especially around the idea of projection. So we project that we need to be a certain way when in fact we really don't. And often, um, people have no energy on and, and feel better with us when we are true to ourselves, but we have this idea of it, but we don't challenge that idea of it. Um, and, so, so that can happen kind of quickly. That can that can happen over time. But the idea that it uh, feels again so good to to kind of walk this walk uh, reinforces itself over and over again. And you know, the, this idea that we have these stories that that are narratives that have we either carry ourselves or have been placed upon us. Really, it's it's freeing ourselves from that to discover. You know. At the end of the day, again, on a day-to-day in this moment basis, who am I? One thought to offer, though, you mentioned it already in our interview a couple of times, um, working with fear. So sometimes it's a light bulb moment or it's gradual and there's not a lot of fear. It just kind of uh, changes over time. But more often, when people transform and heal, though it feels good and it is on this new trajectory, 
a part of their system is pretty scared. And so I do mindfulness at the beginning of every session, just a three to five minute little drop in. I really try to teach people to work with their nervous systems because they are going to deal with fear uh, rather than I'll be authentic when I'm not afraid to be authentic anymore. It's just, it, you know, okay, in 2025, maybe that day will show up. Well, that's, you know, a lot of time, a lot of time we on the planet, we can't get back. And so I just believe therapists really need to work, help people work with anxiety. And a lot of people, if you don't have a phobia, and if you don't have panic attacks, I teach people that, you know, I can't prescribe meds and, um, and they often wouldn't go that direction, but they do have an anxiety disorder. Like they were undiagnosed and untreated their whole life. So they've always had anxiety, but they've normalized that. So the working with fear for anything we're talking about today is an essential part of the process. Wow. I feel like we're going to have to have another conversation. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we're just kind of scratching the surface yeah. here, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Now tell me wakefulness. What does that for someone who's not really familiar or into this, but not happy and they want to find a better way. What does that ultimately look like? for us mm-hmm. and we just yes. wake up. Yes. Well, and just as an aside, I'm a little annoyed that the idea of wokeness has been, you know, hijacked before or after my book. And this is not a political word that, for, you know, like find your own word. This is a really good word. And uh, from a, from that spiritual idea of being asleep. Uh, so yeah, wakefulness, what I define it as is relaxed deeply present. So that means present in my body and not living shoulders up, but also present in the moment and connected. And I would offer connected at the very least to myself, but I would propose connected to that that is outside of me, something larger, whether I can name that or not, um, whether that remains mysterious to me or not. Relaxed, present, and connected. So that's my North Star of, okay, but I just you know, got bad news. How can I be wakeful through that? Or things are happening on the world stage that are really painful. How can I be wakeful through that? Somebody just cut me off on the freeway. How can I be wakeful? So with those three ideas of wakefulness, but you're yours and my awakened self, that's, that's the whole thing in the book is to try to help people make that a, a reality, manifest that. Wow. Okay, so now in closing, I am going to ask you to leave us with some wisdom or just something powerful that you would like to share for those struggling, stuck, wanting to kind of lean into a state of wakefulness. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just being very spontaneous right now. What's coming to me is the phrase um, to be an instrument of love and that love moves in all directions and it in- includes ourselves. And if we are truly every day an instrument of love, it's purposeful. It um, doesn't mean that there's not really hard and painful things, but love also is there to meet that pain. But in particular with what we've talked about, Sue, it captures that love isn't just an outsourcing. 
Uh, it moves in all, it wants to move in all directions. So again, as generous as we are towards ourselves is the love that we really bring to the world. Wow. Oh my God. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. You were so wonderful and so insightful. I'm Thank so you, honored. Sue. I, oh, I feel so honored to be on your show and so um, affected and touched by our conversation. Um, really deep gratitude uh, for this invitation and our time together. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.